You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our scripture for this evening comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought, to him, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we, do thankful, we are thankful for your word, and we pray now that as we come into your presence, gathered as your people under your word, that you would show us Christ, that you would have your way and mold us and make us more and more into his image. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. No kids leaving this evening. It's good to have all of you staying with us in the service tonight. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to after the service. Come, come and say hi after this service, and we would love to meet you and say hello, get to know you a bit. Uh, well, we are now three and a half chapters into the gospel according to Luke. We have been seeing the narrative tension building and building and building. From the very beginning of this book, we saw in response to centuries of silence from God, Gabriel came and he announced that the, sp- the springtime is coming. The long winter freeze is about to thaw, that the long expected Messiah, the anointed son of David, is coming to establish his kingdom. But this kingdom we saw from the very beginning, from Luke 1, is not a kingdom like people will expect. It's an upside down kingdom. But the real twist is, as we've thought about, that the kingdom is not actually upside down. The kingdom is actually right side up. It just looks like it's upside down because this world in its rejection of God is actually the one that is upside down. And so we saw chapter two and chapter three after preparing uh, this preaching of John the Baptist, Jesus the Messiah comes. He is declared from heaven. He is declared by all of history that he is not only son of David, son of Adam, 
but he is the son of God. He is the kingly ruler over all of the, the world. He is God's beloved son, even the coming suffering servant of God. But while heaven and while history are shouting these truths about Jesus, Satan immediately, we saw last week, tries to get Jesus to forget, even to abandon his place of God's firstborn heir, the firstborn kingly son. And so Satan, we saw, say over and over and over again, if you actually are the son of God, you should do this, you should do that, you should do that. And so last week we saw Jesus, like Israel, who went through the waters of baptism and then go through not 40 years, Jesus then 40 days of testing in the wilderness that he succeeded where Jesus or where Israel failed. He is ready. He is finally ready, like Joshua, whom Jesus is named after, to come back across the Jordan and finally, now finally, here in chapter 3, begin his kingly conquest of the land. But again, he's going to show us that his conquest is upside down. It is not necessarily what the people expect. It is not necessarily even what the people want. We're going to see that Jesus is going to teach. He is going to speak. He is going to proclaim God's word. We're going to see him act like John the Baptist and many who came before him as a prophet of the Lord, speaking on behalf of God, speaking for God. But unlike so many fearful and timid Israelites in the Old Testament story, Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not unsure about what God wants. He is absolutely, when he steps up for the first time to teach, not struggling through some like deep-seated imposter syndrome of whether or not the people are going to approve of him, accept him, believe him. He knows who he is. He knows what God wants. And in his very first public teaching, Jesus speaks confidently and without a hint of fear, without a hint of anxiety. So listen up. We're going to see this play out under two headings tonight, that Jesus, as the prophet of God, he is the prophet speaking for God. We're going to see the prophet proclaim, and then the prophet rejected. And so first of all, the prophet proclaims, verse 14, Jesus returned, that is, from the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So after everything that's happened down south, down outside of Jerusalem, and then in and around the Jordan River, Jesus returns back up to the north, the place of his growing up years, the region of Galilee. And in the power of the Spirit, like wrapped up in the Spirit, wearing the Spirit, he is teaching. And based on what's later said, presumably in these two verses here, he's actually healing. And so because of his teaching and his healing, there's like gossip going around on and around about what Jesus is doing. Who is this guy? What is Jesus? Who is he? And not just that, but then Luke tells us in verse 15, after teaching in many of the synagogues, Jesus is actually being glorified by all. This is the same word that we saw back in chapter 2. Remember this, after the angels are proclaiming about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and then Luke told us in chapter 2, the shepherds returned, returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. They're glorifying God, and here, because of Jesus' teaching, he is being glorified in the synagogues. And so if you're reading this story for the very first time, not knowing where the story is going, you think, this is amazing. It's happening. Everything is happening exactly like it should. I've been hearing about this story, about the angels proclaiming about who Jesus is, about the shepherds coming and worshiping him, about John the Baptist proclaiming about his coming, and now finally the people are receiving him. They're worshiping and glorifying him. And that might be what you'd expect if Luke were the very first book of the Bible that you ever read. 
But if you read the Old Testament before this, if you had seen the history of how people respond to the teaching of God, to the Word of God, even if you think about your own heart and how you respond to the teaching and the Word of God, how humanity responds to the Word of God, you might be hopeful and optimistic here that, all right, they're receiving and worshiping and glorifying Him, but you might be optimistic with a sense of coming dread. So you might think, all right, synagogues, all right, people of Galilee, keep listening. Keep glorifying and worshiping Jesus. But Luke goes on, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, finally, he's actually come to his very hometown, the town of Nazareth, where he grew up. And he goes to the Sabbath synagogue. He goes to the synagogue on Saturday. Now, no one knows exactly how or when this synagogue system started. There isn't very much telling at all in the Old Testament narrative about a synagogue. But it came with the Jewish people being scattered further and further away from Jerusalem, further and further away from the temple and the sacrificial system there. The synagogues became the place for weekly prayer and worship of the Jewish people, for the reading and the teaching of the scriptures. And its liturgy, the liturgy, the forms of worship, essentially became the Christ-centered model for then Christian worship to adopt and transform on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. But it was Jesus' weekly habit to gather with God's people at the synagogue for weekly prayer and worship. It was an absolute priority in his life. It's very subtle here, Luke, was, Luke is telling us, but it was his habit. It is Jesus' priority in his life that he presumably built the rest of his week on and around, rather than perhaps like an optional add-on. Depending on how Jesus' week went, he is with God's people, sitting under the teaching of God's word, praying and worshiping God with the people. And so here he is, again, at synagogue, perhaps at the synagogue where he grew up his entire life, And here he is on this Saturday, and as various men and elders would take turns reading and teaching from the scriptures, Jesus stood up to read. Luke doesn't tell us if it was Jesus's turn, if this is the very first time that he has ever done this at this synagogue, or if because of his growing reputation as a teacher, the people ask him to come and to read and to teach, or what? But the scroll of Isaiah is handed to Jesus. This is a scroll, not like we can just like kind of pinch Isaiah in this much right here. This is the entire scroll of Isaiah, which would have been like a foot tall and 24 feet long if you unroll the entire thing. And Jesus unrolls the thing, and he finds the place in Isaiah 61, near the very end of the scroll. Again, Luke doesn't tell us if this was the very next text, like if last Saturday uh, the people had read through and someone had taught from Isaiah 60 or something like that, or if in God's providence this is the text that Jesus here is just uh, given and asked to read, or perhaps he could have opened to anything and this is what he chose. But nevertheless, he reads this. He opens the scroll of Isaiah, finds the 61st chapter, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a quote. This is what Isaiah has written many hundreds of years before. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then... 
Rather than giving the customary teaching or explanation of what Jesus has read, he rolls the scroll back up and he gives it back to the attendant and he just sits down. And the eyes of all are fixed upon him. He's just read. He gets up here and reads. He goes back down there and sits down. And the whole congregation, the synagogue, is just like staring at it like a, well, what about it? And then, verse 21, he began to say, presumably, while still sitting down, maybe he's still sitting over here in the corner with his legs crossed, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This, what he just read from Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus, taking on Isaiah for himself, Jesus says that now being clothed in, wearing the spirit, this is what he has come to do. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to fulfill all of that. The future day that Isaiah looks forward to now is here in what Jesus is doing. He has come and he is here to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, to recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And initially, the response is good, just like the response had been throughout Galilee. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, before we get to their further reaction and to Jesus's response to their reaction, what do we make of what Jesus has just said? Is this actually what Jesus's life, what his teaching, what his ministry is all about? I thought Jesus's life, his teaching, and his ministry was about the cross, his substitutionary work on behalf of sinners. Is Jesus's ministry actually now toward the poor and the oppressed? And if so, shouldn't it be our ministry, or perhaps more so than it is? Now, first of all, we should observe that there have been like entire theological systems built out of just these very few verses. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, many Central and South American clergy and theologians got really, really tired. They got really fed up with seeing wealthy, autocratic dictators oppressing the poor for decades. And the Catholic Church in these countries coming, kind of, coming alongside and being complicit in that oppression. And so these initially Catholic theologians began to use the Bible, particularly these verses in Luke 4, and they began to teach what is now known as liberation theology. By the late 60s and 70s, liberation theology had spread all throughout Central and South America, through Africa, through Asia, to North America, and to the world. Now, we don't have time tonight to go through an entire history of philosophy and ideas, but liberation theology at its core is a belief that there are those in power who seek to ongoingly oppress the poor, to ongoingly oppress the marginalized. They might be marginalized for any number of reasons, because of class, because of skin color, because of race, because of gender, or in later decades, because of sexual orientation. And yet, liberation theologians would argue, Jesus has come in his own words, this is what he has built his entire ministry upon, Jesus has come to liberate, to set free those who are oppressed. And so the church Again, in its original context of the Catholic Church in 1960s Latin America, the church must make it uh, its whole reason for being about Jesus' whole reason for being. 
about bringing relief to the poor, about bringing freedom to the oppressed. And unfortunately, that might mean short-term violence. Unfortunately, that might mean an overthrowing of those who are in power. But, you know, never made an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Bringing the kingdom of God is all the justification that is needed for bringing about this overthrow. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. Now, this kind of radical liberation theology might not be popularly mainstream today, that sort of like overthrowing of governments and that kind of thing, but is it actually wrong? After all, it doesn't take very long. Even if we ignore these verses, the seemingly foundational verses of Jesus' entire ministry— It doesn't take very long to keep reading the rest of the Bible, to read the Old Testament prophets, and to see that God has a particular heart for the poor, for the oppressed. Shoot, we've already seen it here in Luke's gospel, in the Magnificat, Mary's song in Luke 1. Mary wrote this, what some might call the communist manifesto of the Bible. This is Mary, mother of Jesus. She says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So as is the case with any biblical text, we must read every text in context. What is the context of this, of Luke 4, within the rest of Luke's gospel? What is the context of Isaiah 61 within the context of Luke? What is the context of Isaiah 61 within the context of Isaiah What is the context of Isaiah and Luke within the rest of the Bible? These are all very important questions. So by the time, if we're starting to read Isaiah from chapter 1 in Isaiah, by the time we get to chapter 61, we will have already seen over and over and over and over again in Isaiah's book that poverty and affliction have come on God's people as God's judgment for sin. In David's day, Isaiah is looking back towards, and in David's day, when there was right and worship, right worship and obedience to God, God had blessed the ethnic people, the national people of Abraham, with security, even financially. But in Isaiah 61, why are there poor people? Why are there captives? Well, they are in captive Babylon. God's people, Israel, are in captive Babylon because God has brought judgment upon his people. Just like Adam and Eve, he has sent his people out of the land of his presence away into exile to the east. He has brought both physical and spiritual blindness to his people, so much so that they cannot and they will not see his goodness. All of this because of his right judgment. And so when the servant of God begins showing up in Isaiah, through the chapters, through the 40s and the 50s and even the 60s of Isaiah, when the servant of God the righteous ruler of God who will also suffer his people, when that servant comes, the servant of God will open the eyes of his people from their blindness. He will liberate them from exile. He will proclaim a year of God's favor, the year of jubilee, a year where the enslaved are set free from bondage. He will bring communion from a formerly blind and exiled people to once again know and dwell with God. All of that previous affliction, affliction, that suffering that comes as a result of the judgment of God, the servant will come and he will bear all of that suffering and affliction upon himself for the people. Isaiah 53, 
Isaiah writes, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Again, in the context, our griefs and our sorrows are the the griefs and the sorrows of exile, of imprisonment, of judgment. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. And so, when Jesus starts preaching Isaiah 61, he is preaching the exact same thing that we sang earlier. Hallelujah! Praise the one who has set me free, who has set me free from the bondage of sin and from the right judgment of God. He has brought sight where there was once blindness to God. Now true, some people have taken on and understood this freedom language, perhaps better than many of us have. Throughout the centuries, especially our black brothers and sisters, enslaved, anybody who has ever been enslaved by another human is able, perhaps, to take on this language, this idea of liberation, of jubilee, perhaps in a way that many of us might not understand or experience. And yet, all of this and all of that is pointing forward to a greater jubilee, to a greater liberation of being set free from bondage, from sin, from death, from blindness, to know God. And so Jesus, the prophets, the psalmists, and the later New Testament writers will then, even though still, have much to say about caring for the poor. There's no way around that. And yet the overwhelming majority of that teaching is about people of, who, of God caring for what many might call the, the pious poor. Those who suffer as a result of their piety, their openness and obedience to God. The people of God in the Old Testament, the national ethnic Israels, must not ignore the vulnerable in their midst especially those who are suffering for their knowledge of God, for their right worship of Him. They must not ignore the poor, the widow, the orphan. They must not ignore the foreigner who has left everything and come to know and worship Israel's God. And the people of God this side of the cross, the church, must not ignore the vulnerable, must not ignore the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner in our midst. Almost every command, though, about caring for the poor in the New Testament is about not neglecting your brother, that is, the church. When one member of our church suffers, we must all suffer and care well for that suffering brother or sister. And so Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by all this, people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for every single person suffering in the world, that you have love for this, that, or this social cause. No, that you have love for one another that you have love for how we care for the people of God, just like the prophets were extolling and extolling and extolling the people of God to care for the people of God. And yet, there are plenty of places in the Bible in which God's people must care for and even show radical generosity to those who are outside of our walls. Jesus explains in John 9 that the blind man was absolutely not blind as a result of his own sin or the sin of his parents 
we're not necessarily talking about a spiritual blindness here. Jesus heals him physically as well. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan confronts many of our sensibilities of ignoring and walking by those who are suffering. The Samaritan not only stops and cares for the beaten and naked traveler, but he then completely changes his plans. He changes his own personal finances to care for this man. Ethnic or even religious differences must not be a barrier to the kind of sacrificial living that Jesus commends. Who is your neighbor? Jesus asks. Who is your neighbor? Any human who is made in the image of God. And which humans are made in the image of God? All of them. And yet, as we've already seen through Luke 1 and 2, while our culture makes plans, while we, many of us, can tend to try to take control of our lives and steer ourselves towards maximal success, or we can grab our children and point them toward maximal success, the poor live under no such delusion that they, that actually we, are the masters of our own universe. The poor and the marginalized, often more so than the wealthy and the so-called stable, are often better prepared to turn and to depend on the work and provision of God, which has been Luke's point throughout the entire gospel up until this point about the poor, about the upside-down nature of the kingdom. And so because of God's generous grace, the merciful, the overflowing, and the abundant kindness of God that he pours out on his children actually flows through his children. Like a hand sprayer on the end of a water hose, God's generous grace and abundant kindness ought to keep moving through us. And so just as we as a church have built lines in our annual budget for benevolence, of financial help for those in our community who are in need, we also build into our budget uh, lines for ongoing support of other ministries who are doing full-time or frontline work with physical and material suffering. Lines in our budget for people outside of our church to just come for, to us for financial help. But in the same way we do that as a church, we as individuals should likely also budget places for benevolence in our own finances as well, to plan for generosity when needs arise. We Americans ongoingly need challenges. We need reminders, perhaps even confrontation of our economic worldview that so deceptively whispers in our ear into our heart that the meaning of life is the accumulation of stuff. The meaning of life is the elimination of any insecurity or discomfort. The meaning of life is the promotion of me and mine. And if we are completely removed from encountering or knowing folks in this city who are experiencing material or financial poverty or insecurity or even vulnerability, we should be putting ourselves in a position to know them. And so this is a great opportunity to put our Shine partnership back in front of you. We were just beginning to pick up some momentum on the campus of the nearby Eugene Field Elementary when COVID hit. Can you believe it? In two months from now is three years ago. Three years ago. So while our gospel communities, our small group GCs, are still providing weekend food bags for upward of 50 students, the administration of that school is now really excited. They're asking us to be more present on campus with lots and lots of different kinds of opportunities with varying levels of involvement or commitment. They would love to have individuals, some of us, just show up and help teachers with their classroom, to help in the library, restock books, 
That can be weekly. That can be once a semester. That can be once a year. If you have a fun skill that elementary students might enjoy, like coding or knitting or some craft, they would absolutely love you to come and like lead a two or a four or a six-week after-school club. The Roadrunner Food Bank has a food pantry giveaway for families on the second Tuesday of every month. They need help. Or, and here's a, a unique and awesome ask, the principal of Eugene Field has asked if we might have like five to ten folks who might be willing to bring their laptop one evening in the next month or so and just sit in the cafeteria and to help parents walk through their tax return with TurboTax open. That's a great ask. That's like a once a year thing. But to sit next to somebody and think through finances, to think through how, how can finances be an initial door for me to help, or not only help you, but to get to know you. So like our Savior, we must love the world, showing and exemplifying compassion toward the marginalized, towards the vulnerable. But why? What's the point? Are we to shine like lights, that Jesus, as Jesus says, that they might see your good works and that they might have their material needs temporarily met? We might shine like lights that they might be pulled from vulnerability. No, Matthew 5, 16, shine like lights that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus has come with a preference to the poor and with a mission of bringing justice towards those who are wrongfully imprisoned. But importantly, Jesus does not come to bring money to the poor. He proclaims good news to the poor. Literally, he proclaims the gospel. He actually doesn't release captives from literal prisons here. But he proclaim, proclaims liberty to captives, to captives of sin. He's saying, as he sits down, he says, all of this is now fulfilled in me. He hasn't even done any of that thing yet. But he's saying, because I'm here, and as Rabo shared, something that we've shared many times before, the gospel accounts we might, be, we might consider as passion narratives, that is, uh, stories of the cross of Jesus, his last week, passion narratives with extended introductions. If all of this is moving towards the cross, then all of this is actually being fulfilled here. The gospel of his coming death and resurrection is fulfilled here. Now, by the way, if you have more questions about what I actually have or haven't said here tonight, uh, back in April and May of 2021, we spent three Sundays thinking through race and justice and the mission of the church. You can find all those sermons on the website or on the podcast or come and ask me and I can point, those, point you to those. Maybe you might find those helpful. Maybe you might have a, some assumptions about what I just said or didn't say. Uh, we flushed some of those things out way more over three weeks. But now here, in the context of the scroll of Isaiah that Jesus reads, Jesus is saying that the promised servant of God who will bring liberation, who will bring sight, who will bring about a new creation altogether is here, is fulfilled now. The scripture has been fulfilled. I am here. The new creation is here. All in those verses that he just read. If you know Isaiah, and the crowd, as we've seen, initially responds very favorably. They marvel at the words coming from his mouth. 
Now, back in the temptation of chapter 4, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3. He said, when Satan tempts him to turn the stone into bread, Luke tells us that Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. But then Luke cuts off that, the rest of that verse. Did you realize that when we were reading through Luke? If you know Matthew really well, Matthew finishes Jesus' statement where Jesus tells Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, it's almost as if Luke cut off that verse then in the wilderness so that he could finish it here. Man does not live by bread alone, but now the words, the people, the the words that people are marveling at are coming out from his very mouth. That's a weird way to say they marveled at what he was saying. They marveled at the like, almost like personified active words that are coming out of his mouth. They are marveling at the word of God, the divine words. He is speaking God's words. He is the prophet of God, preaching, proclaiming God's new work to and among his people. But then, like all of us do, they get to thinking. They have a great initial response to Jesus, and then they go inside their heads. And they come out with a different response to Jesus. So first of all, if the prophet proclaims, now secondly, the prophet is rejected. Into verse 22. And they said, wait a minute, that's in the Greek. Is not this Joseph's son? Now all of these people knew Jesus as a kid. He's Joseph's kid. And so like, kind of like when you uh, are watching some special on TV or on Netflix or something about childhood friends of today's celebrities, right? They, they aren't distracted by all the fame that we're distracted by. They, they, they were in kindergarten with whoever, right? It's almost like they almost know the real person that we, the, the wider public, don't know and understand. Well, the same could be said for these folks, except for all these grown-up years in which they knew Jesus. They actually missed the real person. They've become all too familiar with Jesus, which is an important word of warning to us as well. They hear Jesus saying that he is the prophetic servant of God here to usher in the new creation, and they're like, huh? Wait, what? What did you say? Like, I used to take you and your classmates out to recess. Like, I, uh, I cleaned up your bloody knee one time. I made you milk and cookies. We watched you play t-ball. And here you are saying that like the new creation is here in you. The eschatological end times kingdom of God is now fulfilled here in you. What are you talking about? They've gone inside their heads and they're thinking that can't be. And yet Jesus, like he will do so many times, goes into their heads as well. And he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. We've heard that Jesus has been out there in Capernaum doing magic tricks. He's been healing and providing over the next town of Capernaum. If he's really the prophet and the servant of God, let's see some of that action over here, Joseph's kid. If not, if he won't do that, if he won't show us some of that sweet action, then he's like a doctor who goes and heals everyone out there while he ignores his own deteriorating health. Heal yourself, doctor, before you start healing others. He's basic, they're basically saying, you've told us who you are and what you're doing. Now produce, prove it. Like, 
heal some blindness, free some captives, perhaps maybe even free us from the terrible Romans. Do what you say you can do. And Jesus responds, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Because of people's hometown familiarity with a person, the unspoken idea of we know who this person really is, then people can claim some sort of authority over, over a person. We talked about that when we thought through Ephesians. It's why city folks in a small town, or why folks in a small town can begrudge someone who moves away to the big city. Think, oh, yeah, that guy got too big for his britches. They're almost saying, we have an authority over that person, and we know who he or she really is before they moved away to the big city. And so Jesus says, yes, I understand. I understand that you are rejecting me, that you are rejecting God. You are rejecting what God the Father, through the power of the Spirit, who is upon me, is doing. But this isn't the first time this has happened. And so he tells two stories of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets. He tells the story, he reminds the people here in Nazareth, that Elijah was once driven out of Israel during famine and drought. Again, a famine brought about by covenant unfaithfulness. One of the bottoming out worst moments in national history. And he reminds them that the people did not receive the prophet, but that Elijah is received by a Gentile widow way far away in modern-day Lebanon, that's where the prophet of the Lord, that's where the word of God is received. And then he reminds the people of Elisha, who God used to heal not the lepers of Israel, but to heal the leprosy of the Syrian military commander. So maybe when you heard Tim reading this earlier, and you heard Jesus start telling some Bible stories about Elijah and Elisha, and then you heard verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And you were like, wait, what? He was just telling Bible stories. Maybe he had the felt board up. And then, when you keep reading and you find out that their wrath led them to form a mob and carry him up to the top of the town to throw him off a cliff. What in the world? For Bible stories. But we kind of miss what Jesus is saying. And he's actually not being very subtle at all. Jesus recognizes that they are not receiving what he is teaching about himself and about his ministry. And he says, yeah, that always happens, doesn't it? The people who should know God, who receive his word, who should receive his word, they always end up rejecting it, don't they? But then the word of God always goes out and then gets received by those who are needy, received by those who are eager, who want it. The people who you wouldn't expect, the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the word of God gets received by people who you might even hate. It always happens, doesn't it? And then they prove Jesus' point by trying to throw him off a cliff. And all this just fits right in line with the rest of this text and with the rest of Luke. There is a great reversal happening Simeon, we saw way back in chapter 2, Simeon told Mary about her eight-day-old baby, Jesus. 
Simeon said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Hearts are being revealed. And the irony is that their lowly, lowly hearts are now going up to the highest place in town. Everything is upside down in this world, just like Satan took Jesus up to the high place and tempted him to throw himself off. The people now want to throw Jesus off of another high place. And as Satan was tempting Jesus to make God prove that he would protect Jesus here, God does protect his son. He is faithful. This is no test. It is just love. Now, we're not sure if this is miraculous or if there was just some big commotion and Jesus passes through, but he goes away. And off he goes. Off he goes. Now into the next five chapters, healing, teaching, providing, calling, all culminating in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, which we could say ends the first section of Luke's gospel. It is a move of revelation. In these, these chapters, 3 through 9, it's all about revelation, revealing, revealing, revealing who Jesus is, perhaps here as the prophet of God, as the suffering servant of God, as the king of God, the one who will bring about a new creation. There's much more to be reveal, revealed in the coming chapters, but it is a move of revelation to then confession of who Jesus is. When Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And that's the move that Luke wants for every reader of his gospel. To hear Jesus as the prophet, as the king, as the priest, as the suffering servant of God, and to believe him. To not, as the people before, the people who should have received God's word, but rejected it. But now here, as the people of God to receive God's word, even in correction, in encouragement, in rebuke, to receive Jesus, to obey him, to be confronted, to love others, to love the church well, to love the city well, to put ourselves at Jesus' feet, to place ourselves into Jesus' service, to nestle ourselves right up into Jesus' side in worship, in delight, in love, from revelation to confession, from knowledge about Jesus to love of Jesus, from being God aware to God engaged, to know him, to respond to him, to worship him. And that in acknowledging and expressing our great need, our neediness, our neediness, that he might fill it, our need, that he might fill us for us and through us, not ending in us, but for the good of others. And he is faithful and he is able to do it. Let's pray that he would. Our Father, we believe these things. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. We want to be a people who know you, to hear you clearly, to be a people just as Jesus is proclaiming liberty to captives that we might more and more be a people of proclamation, a people who are eager and ready to proclaim to those around us, to proclaim those who are blind, to proclaim to those who are in captive sin a way of freedom, the one who has brought freedom, the one who can bring sight. Just as Kyle prayed earlier, might we more and more have uh, or be seeking more relationships in our lives to proclaim this good news. 
Might we be a church that you move through to bring many into the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus as the Christ, as the great prophet, priest, and king that he is. And we pray for all of these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.